Well, good morning. I hope you had a really nice Thanksgiving time. I know some of you folks are, well, I saw Josh back from school, so that's a nice break, all the way to January 11th. I don't know how schools do that. You forget everything you learned in the first semester. But good to see everybody. Beautiful day, isn't it? So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the the time that you have given us to come together, to fellowship with one another, to sing praises to you, to pray, and Lord, to uh, come under the preaching of your word. Father, I thank you for the Spirit of God who makes truth real in our life, convicts us of our sin, and Lord, even that desire to walk righteously comes from you through the new birth that you have accomplished in our life. You make all things new. Help us to remember, Father, that you make all things beautiful in your time. We look at a fallen world. We look at what sin has brought about. But Lord, we know that this is not the final state. That one day, Lord, you will come. The Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King, and he will completely redeem his creation. And Father, we long for that time. But Father, we pray also with the limited time that we have been given that, Lord, we would serve you with our whole heart, that we would serve you joyfully. And Father, that we would remember that people without Christ face an eternity separated from you. So we do pray for the lost. We pray for the missionaries who go forth preaching the word of God to them, translating the scripture in their own language so they can read the word of God. Pray for our own efforts, Lord, at personal evangelism, for family and friends and co-workers people that we have shared the gospel with. and Lord, we ask you to bring forth fruit from our labors. We know your word never goes forth void, but we know there's also, Lord, a stubbornness in the human heart. People resist the word of God. So I pray, Father, by the power of your spirit, you would break down that resistance. Thank you for every good gift that you have given to us as we've celebrated Thanksgiving, Lord. Every day is a day of thanksgiving. The very breath of air that we take, every breath comes from you. The strength that you give us in our sufferings and tribulations in this world, the comfort and encouragement that come from the word of God and from the spirit of God and from friends, other believers. I thank you for everyone who's been an encouragement to me and Lord, help me to be an encouragement to others also. Now, Father, we do pray. Help us to, to have open hearts and open minds to your word. And bless it, Father, I pray in special ways in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I continue my preaching on the institution of government, part of the series on divine institutions, I'm working toward how a Christian should respond when government abuses its authority. But I thought today that I would give a little bit of overview of government in the Bible. And I'm hoping that that will serve as a little bit of a review as well. One thing that many Christians lack, I believe, when it comes to the study of Scripture is a, a big picture and I was reminded of that by someone this past week. But they lack a panoramic view of God's work on earth. Many of the teachings of the Bible, if you've studied the Bible for any period of time, you know that they are, they are interrelated. And we do a disservice to biblical interpretation 
when we isolate some of our studies outside the framework of the whole work of God in human history, beginning in Genesis. And that is one reason why we sometimes have difficulties with preaching on certain texts, even, even such as Romans 13, which is about the institution of human government, but it gives just a basic statement that it was God who instituted government, not just our government, every government, and not the form of governments, but the authority and the power that governments would have. When I'm talking about divine institutions, what I mean by that is God designed structures for the good of human society. The family which we studied has a divine structure about it. The church, which we will study, has a divine structure about it. And government has a divine structure. Well, it has a structure that, that uh, men uh, form. There are different governments, but yet the structure of government, the authority of government, comes from God, designed by God for man's good. Now, the ultimate authority in all these institutions is who? is God. But we need to see again the big picture of what God, de God designed or we're going to have problems with these institutions. Why, why is the divorce rate still very high? Because people don't accept what? The divine structure for the family. Why are there problems in churches sometimes? Because people don't accept the divine structure that God has for the church. And the same is true of government. So I think we need to see the big picture. And we also have to learn how Christian people should act accordingly in their home life, in their civic responsibilities, and in the church. The scripture doesn't tell us everything that we would like to know doesn't give a complete how-to book about raising a family, decision-making in the home. It doesn't give us a how-to book about government or how to conduct ourselves in the church. But I think we would all agree that there is sufficient teaching in the Scripture to guide us in all of those areas. Now, how do I know that? Because what the scripture says, Second Peter two two, Paul said, or Peter said, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of our of Jesus our Lord, according as His divine power, His His divine authority, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that has called us to glory and virtue. So while we may not have all the details in, in all the areas that we would like to, God has given us everything that we need to live godly lives as Christians. That's what Peter is saying. And while we don't at all always perfectly understand the scriptures, we can trust God that he is doing something. And we do have the, the panoramic view of the redemptive plan of God in the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. God has not hidden that from us. The secret things belong unto the Lord, right? Deuteronomy 29, 29. But the things that have been revealed are for our edification, really. Years ago, at one of our Bible conferences, our guest speaker was Dr. Reynolds Showers of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. And Brother Showers went to, to glory. He went to, 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 to Jesus, the one whom he loved and served in 2019. His teaching here at Faith Community in that Bible conference years ago was based on a book that he wrote in 2003 called One on Earth, What on Earth is God Doing? And I highly recommend that book. It's not a long read, 
But I highly recommend it if you've never read it because it does give you a big overview, the panoramic view of what God is doing on earth. What on earth is God doing and, and what has God done on earth? Those are good questions to ask. To the first, what on earth is God doing? We don't have perfect knowledge, do we? Because God is far above us, the scripture says, and beyond our understanding, and he's only given us limited revelation concerning certain things that even may be upon us today. But Romans 11.33 says this, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. And his ways are past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? We don't know all that God is doing presently in this world. But to the second question, what, is, what has God done? We can look to the history of nations and individuals for some answers. And when we do that, we see that God is sovereign over the nations. There's no doubt about that from the scripture. You could read in Psalm 33, and feel free to turn in your Bibles if you want. One thing that I miss about being indoors is putting the scriptures on uh, the overhead because it's, I think it just reinforces things when you hear it and when you see it. But you do have a Bible, right? Hopefully my references are right. Sometimes I go through these quickly and... That's terrible. I'm reading one thing and you're reading another. If that's the case, just listen to what I have to say. <laughs> Even if I have the wrong reference. <laughs> but Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. That's a sweeping statement, isn't it? About the power of our God in creation. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. It came into being. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen, that's the nations, to nothing. He makes the devices of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever the thoughts of his heart to all generations. God is sovereign over the nations. He brings their plans to nothing. Proverbs 21, 21 tells us that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he wills. And then we looked at these scriptures before, Daniel 2, 20 Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to them that really need understanding, desire to know understanding. Daniel 2.37, Thou, O king, speaking to Ben Nebuchadnezzar, are are a king of kings among men, right? We know who the real king of kings is. But he says, Thou, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. God can directly put kings into their positions of power or remove them. Or he can allow them to come into power through events that serve his purposes. Events that appear to us to be natural events. But the hand of God is behind it. And I would submit to you the, the case of Saul and how God allows kings to come into power. Saul was not God's choice for king. But God allowed him to be king. Saul looked like a king, didn't he? I guess, I suppose. But he ever, never acted like a wise and a godly king. And nevertheless, 
God let the people's choice stand. He let them have their king. You can see this in 1 Samuel 8, and we looked at this passage, but I didn't read all of it a couple weeks ago. But it really is a, a significant turning point in the Scripture, in God's dealing with Israel, and then through Israel with the nations. But in verse 9 of 1 Samuel 8, what did Samuel, the spokesperson of God, the prophet of God, say? As the people wanted a king, like the other nations, hearken unto their voice. Howbeit, yet protest solemnly unto them, and show them the manner of the king that will reign over them. Now Samuel is going to give a, a preview of uh, coming attractions for Israel. You want a king like the nations? You can have a king like the nations. But here is what this king will be like. Verse 10, Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the practice of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and daughters and put them in chariots for himself and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to do his plowing and to gather in his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters and use them as perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of your seed and your vineyards and give it to his high officials and his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Wow, that's a good king, right? It's an utterly corrupt king. Then you will cry out on that day. They regretted their choice. In the future, they would. You will cry out on that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. He was not my choice. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. Sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us is to get what we want. But this is the, the amazing thing, verse 19. After Samuel the prophet, a, a man that they could trust to deliver the word of the Lord, we read in verse 19, Yet the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, so that we also may be like all the nations. God didn't want them to be like all the nations, right? Right? He wanted them to be completely different than all of the nations. But we want to be like all the nations and our king may judge us and go out before us and, and fight our battles. Now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint a king for them. And remember, he told Samuel that it's not you that they're rejecting, right? They're rejecting me, that I should reign over them. So they rejected the theocracy, government by God, in favor of government like other nations. So here's what I learned from this. It is better to trust God than insist on getting what I want. God let the Israelites have an evil ruler. He sometimes sets up kings here by his permissive will. But what we learn from Scripture when we look at the big picture is that most of God's interactions and prophecies concerning nations and kings in the Old Testament and throughout Scripture are usually seen in respect to his purposes for Israel. 
That's the big picture. While I'm concerned about the prospect of Biden being president, and worst case, all the changes, destructive changes that will come about, I am not in despair because I fully trust the Lord and what he may be doing in all of this. Which, which is far beyond my comprehension or analysis. Eve, even with this worldwide virus, I know from the big picture of Scripture that God has used floods and hurricanes, storms, windstorms. We know he uses tsunamis and fires and plagues and even wars to accomplish what he wills. And no one can stay his hand. Now, none of those things are good things on the face of it, but we were assured from Scripture that God works in them for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. Now, that does not mean that I cannot voice my concerns or take action when I see abuses, even government abuses, but I can only do so as a Christian, my personal conviction within the boundaries of God's word. And I have to guard my heart and my mind diligently. And my first recourse in everything is prayer. And maintaining a close fellowship with God. And the older I get, that that's... That's what I desire more than anything. Just, just a closer walk with the Lord. But God raises up kings for his purpose. Romans 9.17 says, For the scripture says of unto Pharaoh, Even for the same purpose have I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. 400 years of Egyptian bondage would lead to God's program for Israel in taking the gospel to the nations. When Paul quoted Romans 9.17, he took it from Exodus 9.15 through verse 17. You know the story of the Exodus. God says, I will stretch out my hand that I might smite thee and thy people with pestilence, the Pharaoh of Egypt, and you will be cut off from the earth. And in very deed, for this very reason, for this cause, I have raised you up. God allowed the Pharaoh to come to the position of power that he had. All of the Pharaohs. But this one in particular, I have raised you up to show in you my power that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. As yet exaltest thou thyself against my people, that thou wilt not let them go? You will let them go, is what God was saying. And I will be glorified in it. God raised Pharaoh up to his place of power and he allowed him to exercise his will against God to accomplish God's will for the nation of Israel. Later in time, God judged Israel by foreign nations, foreign powers, such as Assyria, Babylon, and Rome. We know from history that the northern kingdom of Israel, because of their wickedness, they fell to the Syrians in 722 B.C., and then in 586 B.C., Judah, the southern kingdom fell. God's chosen people. God was going to send them off to Babylon. And, and when, he, when he was sending them off to Babylon, he says, go and, and be good people in the land. Raise your family, conduct your businesses, listen to those people who are over you, the Babylonians, and, and you will prosper there and I will bring you out. But the reason they went into captivity was this. Same reason that the northern kingdom of Israel fell. 
prior to this. Jeremiah 25, 8. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words. Because you have not heard my words. Because you have not obeyed me. This is what I'm going to do. There are always consequences for disobedience. We, we, we must remember that. So God is at work in the nations and in particular in nations concerning his nation Israel whom he has a glorious future in store for. So let me speculate a bit. And this is, this is not biblical. <laughs> this is just speculation. It could be that God will allow a Biden presidency if the election was filled with fraud, even if it was filled with fraud, which I believe it was, to serve his purposes for Israel. We, we, we can't see all that God is doing. But, but it could serve as a preparatory judgment on Israel before the great judgment of the tribulation period that is going to come upon Israel. Maybe we're nearing that hour. I don't know if we are. But I do not believe that a Biden presidency will bode well for Israel. You just have to look at Obama's foreign policy regarding Israel and the Palestinians. Tzaki Hanagbi. I don't know if I pronounced that right. But he is a a minister in the Likud party in Israel. He is a close ally of the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who is also a member of the Likud party, which is the conservative nationalist party in Israel. But before November 3rd, Hanagbi, Hanagbi sounded this warning if Biden would become president. that it would be bad for Israel, that it could be very destructive for Israel. So the question is, is, ir- is Israel fearing a Biden presidency? What happened the other day? If you watch the news, the top Iranian nuclear scientist was killed in an assassination. And Iran's foreign minister linked that assassination of their top nuclear scientist to Israel and vowed revenge on Israel. I don't know who took that man out. God does. But Israel is definitely fearing a Biden presidency. The Times of Israel magazine or publication, not magazine, but they wrote this recently. Iran and the Palestinians are relishing a return to Obama foreign policy under Biden, who is not pro-Israel. The U.S. under Obama clashed heavily and relentlessly with Israel under Netanyahu in two central areas, the Palestinian conflict and Iran's nuclear weapons ambitions. Israel's nuclear capabilities are paramount for their survival. Now their top nuclear scientist in Iran is gone. That is why 70% of Israeli Jews, not American Jews, supported Trump in the election. They didn't have a vote, but they supported him. And God's purposes in allowing a Biden administration may include things other than Israel's national security. They may include the United States, the further decline of morality, an increase in govern, governed government radical education in our universities as if they are not bad enough already. 
but he'll increase the government funding of our universities. I heard a Christian educator cite the following. In 1969, that's one year before I graduated high school, there were three liberals to one conservative on university faculties. Three to one. You say, well, that's, you know, it's what it was, it's not that bad. In 2019, there are 13 liberals to every conservative, to every one conservative on university faculties. And the ratio of new recruits, the ones that they're seeking to bring on to faculties in our major universities, get this, is 48 liberals to every one conservative. Where do you think the anarchists like Antifa and all of these other socialist radicals came from? They're products of the universities. Christian parents should be aware of what their children will get when they send them off to secular schools and they fund it with their, with their money their tuition. And we're funding it with our tax dollars, too. So there are a lot of things happening. Again, I said I'm only speculating. A lot of things happening that God is doing within the nations, even within this nation, that we don't fully understand. But He is sovereign, and in the beginning, God exercised His sovereign authority in the creation of men. There are five big picture events in Genesis chapters 1 through 12. You, you know these very well. There is the creation of all things, including man. There is the fall of man. And just let me say this concerning the fall. Original sin, right, goes back to what? Adam and Eve. And you know that the, the founders of America knew this very well. They knew that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. 33%, 33% of the writings of the American founding fathers were drawn from Scripture. 22% from the Enlightenment period, the Enlightenment writers, which began in 1715 and went through 1789. And 11% were taken from English common law. But their view of, of human nature came largely from the Protestant reformers' doctrine of the depravity of man. And that is why, precisely why, they argued for more laws and stricter laws, not less laws and, and lenient laws, because they knew what was in the heart of man. And they knew that man can't reform his own condition. That man has to be kept strictly under the law of God. And because they knew what was in the heart of man, they argued for the right to, to keep and to bear arms and the right to go to war because they understood that evil men are always out there wanting to harm other people. America was not a Christian nation per se, but the Judeo-Christian ethic is clearly seen in the writings. And by the way, I could cite some things to you with the early colonists who came here that, I mean, they had laws like you would not believe. Very strict laws. Against blasphemy. Against children being disobedient to their parents if you think a spanking is bad. But the five big picture events in Genesis are creation, the fall, then divine judgment, the flood, 
Then the beginning of nations, which I spoke about in Babel, man's rebellion against God. God told men to what? Disperse throughout all the earth, to, you know, to fill the earth, to take dominion. And Babel was a, a rebellion against that notion. It was the concentration of civilization in one area. We'll talk about that more later. Then you have the first of the patriarchs, Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. And God would work through him and his descendants to carry out his plan of redemption. But God created man in his image. The Bible says in Genesis 1.26, he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Then God gave man a, a negative prohibition along with a free will while retaining his sovereignty over man. He commanded man, the Bible says, saying of the tree of the garden, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. That's the negative prohibition. And along with that negative prohibition came the severe consequences for disobedience. In the day that you eat it, you will surely die. And that statement was intended not just for Adam and Eve, but for all of their descendants. You know, we are all under a death sentence, right? That we can never escape apart from the rapture. In Genesis chapter 9, God gave man the right to exercise capital punishment. He instituted in a more formal way, human government with the, the power to take life. But think about it. He imposed it himself prior to Genesis 9 on all humanity. We're, we're all under that sentence of death. And then God commanded man to exercise his God-given authority on the earth, Genesis 2.28. And along with the responsibilities that God gave to man came the accountability of man to God for the stewardship that God had given to him. I love the scripture in Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's. And all its fullness. The world and all those who dwell therein. We're, we're all under God's sovereignty. In him we live and move and have our being, as one of what the Greek poets said, and Paul quoted that. Psalm 115, 16 says, The heavens, the heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's. For the earth has he given to the children of men. Now I pointed out that verse in our study in Romans, that that verse, Psalm 115, 16, teaches divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's. That's everything. It's an all-encompassing statement. But the earth has he given to the children of men. Men, has a, men have a stewardship responsibility for the earth, which belongs to the, to the Lord. And government, in the big picture, is a stewardship responsibility. And God will hold government officials accountable for what they do with that stewardship, even if they do not acknowledge God. I saw yesterday some people had a place to sign up to recall Governor Newsom. And I, I'm not really interested in doing that for two reasons. Number one, we could end up with someone worse and probably will. That's, that's just the trend. That's just the way things are going. And number two, I know that God is going to call him to account one day. None of these scoundrels, to use a, a not-so-Christian word, are going to get away with anything. None of them. All men are going to give an account to God. Even Donald Trump. So politicians, in my, my opinion, 
should m- be mostly concerned about their responsibility and or their accountability to God rather than the voters. But very few of them do because the most of them are unregenerate men. And unregenerated men do what, what fallen creatures do. They sin. They lead other people to sin. They don't care about what God says. They don't care about obeying his word. They don't know his word. They don't hide their word in his, in God's word in their hearts so that, they, that, so that they wouldn't sin against him. They're lost. They need the light of the gospel. As Paul said, the glorious gospel of, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. God also created the family, we know, with a headship structure. And he made men, husbands accountable to him and wives accountable to their husbands and consequently to him. Barry Horner said, Sovereignty that belonged to God was delegated to man who was to rule over the earth, the entire earth, in the exercise of Yahweh's authority. In this theocracy, Adam was seen to derive his authority from God and therefore, since he was called upon it to be in submission to him, Adam's relationship or rulership was God's rulership. And that's why Peter could say, Wives, be obedient to your husbands as unto the Lord. Because the husband's rulership in the home is God's rulership carried out through the, the man that he will hold accountable to lead the home. And the same is true with government. They're carrying out in some way, in ways that we don't understand, a rulership on earth. They have a sphere of authority that has been given to them by God. And then that's why Paul could say in Romans 13, all the, the governments are ordained by God and And if we flagrantly disobey the government, we're disobeying God. Just the same as he said in the home. And that's why I urge caution in whatever we do as Christians. But I'm not telling you what to do. You have have your own right to interpret Scripture for yourself. I've always taught that from this pulpit. But I have every right to tell you what I think Scripture saying to me. The family, when you think about it, was government in miniature, right? And Adam's delegated authority as the, the head of the home was passed on to the entire human race. Now, when you talk to people who aren't Christian about the husband being the, the head of the home, and having his authority from God, that is ridiculous to them. We live in the age of equality, right? But what happened after the fall? Worldwide divine judgment, Genesis 6, 5. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Got a big picture view of uh, what's taking place on earth. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented, better, better to say, it grieved the Lord that he made man on the earth. Grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping things, fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Now God, God doesn't make mistakes. This wasn't a bad experiment. God allowed man to to do what man wanted to do. But we see there that catastrophic corruption brought about catastrophic judgment. And the judgment, the extent of the judgment was consistent with the extent of sin. Every imagination of man's heart was evil continuously. You had complete anarchy upon the face of the earth. 
There was no government. There were no courts rendering justice. But when you think about it, as wicked as it was prior to the flood, God still extended his hand of mercy. It says in Genesis 5.21 that there was a man named Enoch whose name means dedicated. Because here was a man whose whole life was dedicated to God in the midst of the most corrupt civilization that ever existed on the face of the earth. Enoch was dedicated to God. He lived 65 years and he begat Methuselah. And then this most beautiful statement is found in Scripture in Genesis 5.22. And Enoch walked with God. How do you do that? In a corrupt society, Enoch walked with God. And he, after he begat Methuselah 300 years, and he begat sons and daughters, and all the days of Enoch were 365 and 360 and five years. He died a youngster at 365 years old, right? According to the ages that we see there, he was a young man. But then it says, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. God took him, raptured him to heaven. The only other person who had an experience like that was who? Elijah, taken up to heaven in a fiery, fire chari- fiery chariot. But Jude 14 says this, Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, the false teachers, even his day, in his day, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. So Enoch is preaching to a godless generation. The Lord is coming with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against who? Against God. Fearless preacher of God's word. A man completely dedicated to God walking in close fellowship with God. You know what it says in Hebrews 11.5? By faith, Enoch. This is the commentary on Enoch's life. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and, and what was not found. He just suddenly disappeared because God had translated him. God had took him up. For before his translation, he had this testimony. Would that it would be mine, would that it would be yours, that he pleased God. That God could have said a lot more about Enoch. But this was the sum of it all. He had this testimony that he pleased God. Now look, when we we live to please God, we're going to please other people, right? And we're going to make some other people upset. That's the way it is. So make it your aim to please God. Don't make it your aim to please me or anybody else. Make it your aim to please God and you'll do the right thing concerning other people. And sometimes you'll fail. And that old sin nature which never goes away until you're completely transformed into the image of Christ will come to the forefront. And you're going to have to say to people, forgive me. 
But first you have to say to the Lord, forgive me, right? And then, of course, another extension of the mercy of God through another one of his preachers. 2 Peter 2, 5. God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person. And then you know what it says about, a, about Noah? A preacher of what? Righteousness. Righteousness exalteth a nation. But sin is a reproach to every people. We don't need more politicians proclaiming moralism. There's a lot of moralists out there. But the foundation for their moralism only goes so deep And it's not really grounded in the scripture. What this nation needs more than anything else are preachers of righteousness. And I'm not just talking about the men in the pulpits. I'm talking about every one of us. All of God's people. Preachers of righteousness. God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Catastrophic judgment. But you know, according to Romans 1, the wrath of God, what? Abides over every person right now. The judgment is just waiting to be carried out. And the scripture says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We need compassion, brothers and sisters, on people who who face that judgment. We do. We need, like Noah, to warn them, to warn them of the judgment that is coming upon them. Enoch and Noah did not live in easy times. They lived in very wicked times. Just like Paul. Paul and Peter. When when Paul preached in Romans 13, I I think I made a statement a while ago that, you know, Nero was, was going insane, but he really wasn't, you know, he was just getting off onto things, very wicked man. But by the time Peter preached, persecution was widespread. And they both died because of their faith in Jesus Christ and their fearless preaching of God's word. They didn't live in easy times. They lived in wicked times. Men did not honor Enoch and Noah or Paul or Peter. They did not honor them for their preaching and their faithfulness. But God honored them, right? He took Enoch to heaven and he saved Noah and his family from the waters of the flood. God always, always honors men and women of faith. Always. That's the history of the Christian church. And prior to the Christian church... That's the history of the faithful in Israel. He always honors men and women of faith. So my application is simple. How can I be faithful to God in my witness and by how I live? Am I a faithful witness of Jesus Christ to other people who need the gospel? And am I living a way, a life that is pleasing to God? I I would encourage you to, to make that your aim. In the midst of everything that's going on, knowing that we don't know all that God is doing, 
So I, I'm watching like you are. I'm, I'm waiting to see what's all going to come about and how God is going to work in all of this. Whether Trump would become president or Biden would become president or both of them pass off the scene. Who knows what God can do or would do? Nobody. So try as much as you can, even when you think about the subject of government in the Bible, to, to, to get the big picture. And, and then from that big picture, just stand back and, and trust God. Trust God in all things. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. I think of men like Enoch and Noah and Paul and Peter. Think of Abraham and Joseph and David, who even though he committed great sins, you said he was a man after your own heart. He had a passion for you. It's not just men, Lord. There there are many women in the Bible, godly women, who, who give us examples of how we should live. I thank you for these servants of the Lord. I thank you for Christian missionaries and the biographies that we read of, of great men and women of God and who are more contemporary and people in this world today who are being faithful to you, faithful on, on the mission fields of the world, doing things, Lord, that only you really see. Only you can really judge and, and weigh their efforts. I thank you for the people of this church, for their desire, Lord, to serve you, their, their faithfulness to you. Lord, we all fall short. We continue to fall short of the glory of God. We look to you for the strength that you can give us, the spiritual strength. Help us, Lord, as the, as the body grows weaker for, for the, the spiritual nature within us to grow stronger, the inner man to grow stronger by the, by the grace that only you can supply. And Father, I'm thankful this morning that you have given us everything that we need to live a life of faith and godliness. We lack nothing, Lord. Help us to build up one another, as the scripture says. Help us to do good to all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. Help us, Lord, I pray, to, to see the multitudes of people without Christ and their eternal destiny. To, to have compassion on them, Lord. To snatch some as brands out of the fire. Lord, direct us even in our plans here in the church going forward. As we wait upon you, Lord, as we think upon the things that you would have us to do, most importantly and even in terms of communicating the word of God to people. Thank you, Father, for each one here today again, for those who could not be here. I ask you, God, to give them strength I pray for my friend and brother Don. Lord, work mightily in his heart, in his life, in the life of his loved ones. Thank you, God, for his faithfulness, for the faithfulness of so many people we know whom we have watched go through difficult times and remain faithful to you, true to you. I know you'll reward them, Lord. We, we take comfort in knowing that, Lord, you, you alone, you alone honor those who honor you with the kind of an honor that only you can bestow on them. Eternal glory. 
likeness to Jesus Christ, perfect likeness to Christ. Bless our going out, Father, I pray. In all that we do this week, may it be found to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.